This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Wal-a'udwana illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa allahu wahdahu wa la sharika lah. Waliyu salihin. Wa ashadu anna nabiyyana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu nabiyyu al-mustafa al-ameen. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So today is the 14th day of Ramadan of the year 1441 of the Hijrah and this is the 14th session of the Tafsir of the reading and the commentary of Tafsir al-Jalalain by Jalaluddin al-Mahalli and Jalaluddin al-Suyuti عليهما رحمة الله. And before we begin there was a question yesterday concerning uh, verse 63 of Surah Al-Nahl. In the statement of Allah Azza wa Jalla, جَرَمَ أَنَّ لَهُمُ النَّارُ وَأَنَّهُمُ مُفْرَطُونَ There is no doubt that those people, meaning the disbelievers, will be in the fire and that they will be from the mufratun. And I said from the meanings of mufratun is that they will be forgotten. So a question came in and that was, does that mean that Allah Azza wa Jalla forgets that we attribute forgetfulness to Allah? And the answer to that clearly is no, that we don't attribute forgetfulness to Allah Azza wa Jalla. But what it means is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will ignore these people. On Yom Al-Qiyamah, there is a difference between not knowing something, being forgetful, and knowing and choosing to ignore. And that is what Allah Azza wa will do. And this will come later on, in, at the end of Surah, or towards the end of Surah Taha, when Allah Azza wa will say, وَكَذَلِكَ الْيَوْمَ تُنْسَى And likewise, you today will be forgotten. And that is to show that their punishment will be worse. It is a greater form of punishment and humiliation for them, that Allah is aware of them, but that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to ignore them. Just like if someone was to go and have an audience with a king or a prime minister or an extremely wealthy person and they're in dire need. And that person knows that they're there, they know the reason that they've come, but they don't even look towards him and they choose to forget them. That is more humiliating than if they turned up and the king just didn't know, wasn't aware that they were there. And so they were forgotten simply because of a lack of awareness. Allah Azzawajal is aware and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not forget. But Allah chooses to ignore them to increase their humiliation and perhaps when we come to that verse at the end of Surah Taha, we can expand upon that point slightly more. So today, inshallah ta'ala, we begin with the, at the beginning of the 15th juz of the Qur'an and with Surah Al-Isra. Night journey. This surah is Mecca, except for ayah 26, 32, 57, and from 73 to the end of 80, which are Medinan. It has 111 ayat and was revealed after the surah of Qasas. The author Ta'ala, says that Surah Al Isra, which is the 17th surah of the Quran, is a Makki surah. And that is the position of a number of the scholars of the past, Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, amongst them, and Fuhim al Hassan and Al-Ikrimah, amongst many others. And there is, as you can see, <coughs> among some of the scholars of Tafsir, exceptions to the Surah being entirely Meccan. And from those exceptions, is the last few verses, or towards the end of the Surah, the last few verses, 73 to 80, which it is said is the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiyallahu anhumah. And Allah knows best. Another scholar said only three verses, 26, 32, and 57, as mentioned by Al-Qurtubi and Ibn Atiyah. Uh, this surah, 
there is a hadith in Sahih Bukhari or a statement rather by Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu collected in Sahih Bukhari that he said concerning this surah and Surah Al-Kahf and Maryam and Taha and Anbiya and these are five surahs that come one after the other in the Quran he said concerning them Hunna min al-Taladi wa min al-Itaq al-Uwal they are from the early revelations that were given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam so Surah Al-Isra, Kahf Maryam, Taha, Anbiya, which in the Quran, in terms of the order, come one after the other, beginning with this surah, Surah Al-Isra, were from the early revelations, which lends credence, therefore, to the opinion of the majority of the scholars that this surah is a Meccan surah. This surah is known by a number of names, and one of them, or the, one of the most common ones, and the one that most people use the name now, is Surah Al-Isra, which means the night journey. And that is what will be referred to at the beginning of the surah in the first verse. And the author Ta'ala will mention that in great detail. Another name of this surah that it is known by is Surah Bani Israel. The surah of the children of Israel. And that is because Allah Azzawajal in the opening passage of the surah will speak about Bani Israel. And because Allah Azzawajal speaks about Bani Israel, that is why you have amongst some of the scholars this position that the surah is Madani or parts of it are Madani. And that is because Allah Azzawajal mentions Bani Israel and Bani Israel generally in the Quran is not being referred to except in the Medinan period. However, other scholars responded and said, just because the Muslims didn't encounter Bani Israel, meaning the Jews and the Christians, they were aware of them. And so there's no reason why Allah Azzawajal can't mention them in the Meccan period. And Allah Azzawajal knows best. سبحان الذي أسرى بعبده ليلا من المسجد الحرام إلى المسجد الأقصى الذي باركنا حوله لنريه من آياتنا. Glory be to him, to his slave Muhammad صلى الله عليه وسلم. On a journey by night, the word أسرى means by itself to travel at night, and the additional use of by night, ليلا, adverbially, really indicates that it is a short journey from المسجد الحرام to المسجد الأقصى, Jerusalem. The surroundings we have blessed with fruits and rivers in order to show him some of our signs, meaning marvels of our power. <laughs> he is the all-hearing, the all-seeing. Allah hears the words of the Prophet and sees his actions, and so he blessed him with the night journey in which he met the prophets and ascended to heaven. So the wonders of the Malakut have spoke intimately with Allah. This is the first verse of Surah Al-Isra <coughs> that Allah Azza wa begins the surah with and it relays the night journey of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so therefore you can see that this surah is not at the very beginning of the Meccan period but towards the latter part of the Meccan period because the Isra al-Mi'raj takes place into around the 10th year of prophethood. And so the statement of Ibn Mas'ud that it is from the early revelations meaning from the early revelations as in Meccan and Medinan meaning from the Meccan period. The author Taala says, or rather the translator says, on a night journey, on a journey by night, the word Sara, you have Asra or Sara? No, Sara. The word Sara, which basically is the root word of the word Asra, meaning to travel at night. And Allah Azza wa in this verse says, Min al Masjid al Haram ila al Masjid al Aqsa. Allah took him on a night journey from al Masjid al Haram to al Masjid al Aqsa. But what is uh, conveyed in the books of Sunnah? In the hadith that mentioned the night journey of the Prophet ﷺ in Al-Bukhari and in Muslim and in other collections of hadith is that the Prophet ﷺ was at his home or in some narrations the home of Ummu Hanit 
who is the sister of Ali radiallahu an. That's where he was sleeping when Jibreel came to him. And so he wasn't in the masjid. So when Allah says he took him from al-masjid al-haram to al-masjid al-aqsa, he wasn't in the masjid al-haram. He was in his home close to al-masjid al-haram. And the reason why Allah mentions al-masjid al-haram is to honor the area of Mecca, the land of Mecca, by mentioning what is the most noble thing in the city of Mecca. And that is something which is a well-known form of eloquence amongst the Arabs, that you refer to something with what is this most well-known and most honorable landmark. And in this case, that would be the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Surah Al-Isra is the final surah that Rasulullah rahimahullah ta'ala made tafsir of. So this will be his final surah in this tafsir. And then as we mentioned in the introduction to this series, from Surah Al-Kahf, we go to the commentary and the tafsir of his teacher, Jalaluddin al-Mahalli. And that is why As-Suyuti rahimahullah ta'ala at the end of the surah will give his conclusion to the tafsir. So his introduction, as we mentioned, was at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, rather than Fatiha, because his teacher did the tafsir of Fatiha. And then the end or his conclusion is at the end of this surah, Surah Al-Isra, because this is his portion of the tafsir. So his teacher started with the second half of the Qur'an and he completed the first half. And what Rahmatullah does in this surah is go against his own qa'idah, goes against his own principle. His principle thus far in this tafsir has been brevity. We're not going to mention long hadith, we're not mentioning long narrations, we're not going to any of that detail. But twice in this surah he will do that. Twice in this surah he will do that. The first time will be now when he goes into the very long narration of the Isra and Mi'raj. And actually even his long narration is not the full narration, it is longer. But he has chosen to focus upon the part of the narration that is being referred to in the Quran. And that is the journey to the heavens rather than the journey of the part of Mecca to uh, Jerusalem. And then towards the end of the surah, he will mention also a very long hadith concerning the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as they are mentioned or as they come up towards the end of this surah. So this is the final surah that Rasulullah made tafsir of. The Prophet said, the Prophet said, the then I entered the mosque and prayed to walk as there. I came out and the groom brought me a vessel of milk and a vessel of wine. I chose the milk and the groom said, You have chosen the taqwa. Then he went up with me to the first heaven. The groom asked for it to be opened and the voice said, Who is it? He replied, Jibreel. The voice said, Who is with you? He replied, Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They said, Was he sent for? He replied, He was sent for. And the door opened for us. I found Adam who welcomed me and prayed for me. Then he went up to the second heaven and the groom asked for it to be opened. A voice said, Who is it? He replied, Jibreel. They said, Who is with you? He replied, Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. They said, Was he sent for? He replied, He was, and the door was opened for us. Here I found my cousin, Isa ibn Maryam, and Yahya ibn Zakariya. I'm going to, where there is uh, something to mention because it's a long narration to go back over and over again will be difficult. This is the narration of Malik ibn Sa'sa'a radiyallahu anhu in Sahih Bukhari and similar to it is the wording in Sahih Muslim from the hadith of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu and the hadith is also reported by ibn Abbas and others from amongst the companions where there is a slight issue in translation I will just pick up on that point because rather than going back through the lengthy narration in the second heaven the door was opened for me meaning the gate of the heaven there I found my cousins Isa and Yahya they are not the cousins of the Prophet but they are cousins to one another. That is a mistranslation. There I found the cousins, 
meaning they are cousins to one another, as we were mentioned when we come to Surah Maryam, and as we, I think, maybe alluded to in Surah Ali Imran, that Zakariya was the uncle or the, uh, the wife of the aunt of Maryam, and therefore his child and Isa السلام, are related. And so that is what is being referred to. They are not being cousins of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. This is the very long narration that the author Ta'ala mentions and actually the translation is a summarized translation because what actually takes place between the Prophet and those prophets is in slightly more detail that they welcome him by name and they say welcome O noble brother and so on and that is a longer narration but the point is that you get the gist of what happened on that night and it is from the miracles that Allah gave to the Prophet and this took place after the death of Khadija عنها, and the death of his uncle Abu Talib and it is one of the ways that Allah chose to console his Prophet and from the manners of consolation is that Allah gave to him the prayer and that is from the honor of the prayer and its importance in this religion that Allah used it to speak to him directly subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah spoke to him, to him subhanahu Allah spoke to the Prophet directly without Jibreel when he came to the obligation of the salah and we see from the statement of Musa his knowledge of the ummah of our ummah that we wouldn't be able to perform 50 prayers, 45, 40 and even at 5 he said it is too much for your ummah which is often the case for many of the Muslims one of the points that I just want to pick up on and this is a hadith which really if we wanted to go into detail we could take up all of our session today just on the sharh and explanation of this hadith 
But that is that the, the, the position of the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah is that the Prophet went on the night journey in both mind, body and soul, and not just the soul. Meaning that it wasn't just a dream that he saw, but it's something that he physically went on. Because when he comes back to the Quraysh and they disbelieve him, had he said that I just went in a dream, they had no reason to disbelieve him, because in dreams you see and experience all sorts. The reason why they ridicule and mock him and the reason why it becomes a point of contention between them is because he insists that it is something that he did وسلم, with body and soul. And that is the position of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And then you have here at the end of the narration of Al Hakim of Ibn Abbas, anhuma, that he saw Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a well known issue amongst the scholars. Did the Prophet see Allah, actually see him, or did he not see him? And the position amongst the scholars is that he, or the correct position is that he didn't see Allah Azza wa Jal. As the Prophet mentions in another narration, Nurun Anna Ara, I saw light, how could I possibly see him? But he was aware of Allah's presence and he knew that he was before him. But as for actual vision, then that is something which is for the believers on Yomul Qiyamah. And that is because of his 950 years of calling people to Allah and his patience upon that. And that is why, as is mentioned in Sahih Bukhari, when the people on the Day of Judgment go to the different prophets for intercession, when they come to Nuh they will say, Oh Nuh, you are the first messenger that Allah sent to the people of the earth and Allah called you. He called you his grateful slave. Meaning that they will mention to each prophet what Allah honored them with. And this is the way that Allah Azza wa honored Nuh alayhi salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now speaking about the Bani Israel, the children of Israel and the promises that came upon the meaning of punishment and the scholars differ greatly and Allah will mention two types of punishments that came upon Bani Israel and the scholars differ greatly as to what these two punishments were and the majority of the opinion that these are punishments that have already taken place they already happened in the past so one of those opinions as you can see is that it happened in the time of Goliath the story of whom we mentioned at the end of the second juz in Surah Al-Baqarah. Another said that it refers to 
Bukhtanasar, Nebuchadnezzar, whose story we also mentioned in Surah, in Surah Al-Baqarah about the destruction of Jerusalem and the Prophet Uzair, alayhi salam. And there are many narrations, most of them, if not all of them, are Israelite traditions, and many of them, if not all of them, or many of them are weak narrations, and some of them are even fabrications. And Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, when he comes to this verse, he says that I'm surprised that scholars of tafsir have narrated some of these, or mentioned some of these narrations, which are clearly fabrications. And he says, including the Imam of the Mufassirin, At-Tabari, rahimahullah, who, despite his knowledge and his his mastery of the science of hadith and other sciences, chose to mention narrations that are clearly fabrications. And that is one of the benefits of Tafsir ibn Kathir, that he took away or removed what were clearly extremely weak or fabricated a hadith. And if he does mention them, he clearly mentions that this is something which is, which is not to be accepted. Now. <laughs> So, in, as you can see, Allah Azza wa is referring to two types of punishment or two times of calamity that befell on the children of Israel. And as you can see, the scholars differ as to what they are. Was the first one of Goliath or was it of Nebuchadnezzar, Bukhtanasar? The second one then, if the first one is Goliath, then the second one is Bukhtanasar, Nebuchadnezzar. And if the first one is Nebuchadnezzar, then the second one, according to Shokani and others, is when they killed Yahya alayhi salam. The point is that there is a great difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. And we have no authentic narration from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And some of the scholars are even of the opinion that the first one took place, and the second one is yet to take place and will take place towards the end of time. And Allah knows best, but what seems to be more apparent from the Qur'an and the position that the majority of the scholars of tafsir, the classical scholars of tafsir have taken, is that they mention both of them as something which has already taken place in the past. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best.
and gives good news to the believers who do right actions, that they will have this large reward. As for those who do not believe in the next world, we have prepared for them a painful punishment in the fire. Man prays for evil, to come on himself and his family when he is annoyed, just as he prays for good. Man, which is generic here, is prone to be impetuous in invoking against himself without considering the consequences. That is what Allah, the Prophet mentioned in, in the hadith of Sahih Muslim. Because man, as Allah says, prays for evil, means that they make dua against themselves. And the Prophet said, don't make dua against yourselves, nor against your wealth or your family. For perhaps one of you will make dua, and it will be the time in which Allah accepts those supplications, and Allah will accept your supplication. We made the night and day two signs, indicating our power. فَمَحَوْنَا آيَةَ اللَّيْلِ وَجَعَلْنَا آيَةَ النَّهَارِ مُبْرَصِيرَةً لِتَبْتَهُوا فَضْلًا مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ We blotted out the sign of the night by darkness so that you might rest in it and made the sign of the day a time for seeing. It allows vision by its light so that you may seek favor from your Lord by adding. وَلِتَعْلَمُوا عَدَدَ السِّنِينَ وَالْحِسَابِ And know the number of years and the reckoning from time. وَكُلَّ شَيْءٍ فَصَّلْنَاهُ تَفْصِيلًا We have made all things that need to be made clear, very clear. وَكُلَّ إِنْسَانٍ أَلْزَمْنَاهُ طَائِرَهُ فِي عَمُوكِهِ We have fastened the destiny of the actions of every man about his neck. The neck is single out because anything attached to it is very difficult to dislodge. According to Mujahid, there is no one born without having a page on his neck on which is written whether he will be, un- whether he will be fortunate or wretched. On the day of rising, he will see the book in which his actions are recorded. And on the day of rising, we will bring out a book for him, which we will find spread open in front of him, which records all his actions. In verse 13, the translator says, We have fastened the destiny of every man about his neck. And the two positions amongst the scholars of Tafsir concerning the meaning of the word ta'ir is the first that it refers to a person's actions, as the Suyuti rahimahullah mentions in his commentary, and that is the position of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, and the second position, which is the position of 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 uh, Mujahid and Hassan al-Basri and others, is that what is attached to a person's neck is whether they will be wretched or saved, whether they will be from the saved or from the wretched, and what the statement of Mujahid rahimahullah taala doesn't mean a literal thing around the neck, but what is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that when the angel blows into the spirit of the child in the womb of its mother, it writes a number of things, and from the things that it writes is whether it will be from the su'ada, from the happy, saved ones, or from the ashqiya, from those who are wretched. And Shaykh al-Shaqiti, Muhammad al-Amin, rahimahullah, combined between both of those opinions, and he said that it refers to a person's uh, what will be written about them in terms of their actions, which will obviously then determine whether they are from the saved or from the wretched. And that is always a nice thing to do in tafsir, to reconcile between those two opinions. It's always the best methodology of tafsir, where there is no uh, contradiction. You will be told, read your book. Today your own self is reckoned enough against you. 
in verse 14 Allah says اقرأ كتابك means that a person themselves will be told to be their own judge as Al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala said that how more just can Allah be when Allah says to a person you judge your own self read your own record and you tell me what do you think and so a person will judge their own selves and they will see clearly whether they deserve to be saved or not Ibn Kathir rahimahullah commented on the statement of Al-Hassan and he said وَهَذَا مِنْ حُسْنِ كَلَامِ Hasan. This is from the very nice statement of Al-Hasan. to 20 Allah Azzawajal speaks about those who believe and do good and want the hereafter and those people who don't and Allah says then in verse 20 that we sustain both groups Allah provides for both Allah blesses both Allah gives to both of them and what they need which shows the principle that we mentioned numerous times already in, in the tafsir of the Quran that Allah Azzawajal doesn't restrict the blessings of the dunya of the dunya only to the believers in the dunya and Allah Azzawajal doesn't judge whom he loves or doesn't love based upon the blessings of the dunya 
because the Prophet ﷺ was extremely poor and months would go by in times where he wouldn't have anything to eat except for dates and water. And those narrations are well known to everyone. But what Allah does is He provides for everyone in the dunya as a test with poverty and with wealth. But what will matter to Allah is the provision of the hereafter because that is the provision that matters and that is the one that is everlasting. from the importance of the status of being dutiful and righteous to one's parents is that Allah mentions it immediately after Tawheed which as we know is the most important part of our religion and that is to honor the position of the parents in Islam and that is mentioned in numerous hadiths of the Prophet from them is the hadith of the man who came and said O Messenger of Allah what is the most beloved deed to Allah and he said As-salatu ala waqtiha in Al-Bukhari Muslim to pray at its proper time, to offer the prayer is proper time. He said then what? And the Prophet ﷺ said to be dutiful to your parents. Well the hadith of Abu Hurair radiallahu anhu Sahih Muslim, which the Prophet ﷺ said, may the one, uh, may his nose be rubbed or may his nose be rubbed in the dust. And he said it three times. He said the one who finds both or one of his parents in old age and is unable to have their sins forgiven. And there are many countless ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ that speak about the rights of the parents and their amazing or immense duty in Islam, the duty that people have towards them in our religion. And from them is the hadith of the man who traveled to come to the Prophet ﷺ to give him bay'ah, that he would travel and migrate to him and, and make jihad with him. And the Prophet ﷺ said, are your parents alive? He said, yes. He said, فَفِيهِمَا فَجَاهِدْ Then go back and strive for their cause instead. And that is the man who wants to become a companion, make jihad and spend time with the Prophet ﷺ. And those ahadith are too many in number. And so, those people who have their parents alive, or one of them, it is from the greatest blessings of Allah upon them, and from the, the means of Jannah that Allah has opened for them. And those parents, people whose parents have passed away, then it is their duty to make dua for them, and ask Allah to shower His mercy and forgiveness upon them. If one of them reaches or both of them old age, then do not even say the word uf. Is uf a statement, which is the position of some of the scholars of tafsir, that it is the least 
that you could say to them in a bad or disliked way? It's an actual word off in the Arabic language. Or is it a sound that you shouldn't even make that shows your displeasure? Which is how the translator seems to have translated it. Uh, and I would prefer that he uses the actual translation of the Quran as off and then in brackets mention something else. But anyway, the point is that either way, even the minimum of that is something which Allah Azza wa does not allow. that speaks about the rights of the relatives and your relatives are those people that are related to you by blood or through rada'ah, uh, through uh, through settling and those people, the closer they are to you in terms of their relation, the greater they write upon you, grandparents uncles, aunts that are your paternal and maternal aunts and so on and so forth and they have a right upon you in this religion and the least of their rights is that you keep that good tie with them, you keep that connection, you give their salams, you attend their functions when they invite you and so on. And in the hadith of Muslim, the Prophet said whoever wants an increase in their lifespan and in their wealth and provision then let them, tie, let them join the ties of kinship. And in the hadith the Prophet said that the word in Arabic for kinship is rahim, which comes from the word root word of mercy. That Allah says that I gave you the name, meaning the kinship, from my name, one of my names, because Allah is a rahim. So whoever joins you, I will join, and whoever cuts you off, I will cut off. <laughs> And 
in this verse, verse 29, Allah Azza wa is saying that you should be balanced in the way that you spend. Give charity, not so that you yourself become poor to that extent, neither to the extent that you don't give anything and you become from the stingy and the miserly. And we know in the Sunnah, in the authentic narrations, that there were companions who gave more than that. They, they spent everything, like Abu Bakr radiallahu he gave everything that he possessed, and Umar radiallahu gave half of what he had. And the Shatimi rahimahullah amongst other scholars of Islam said that that differs then from person to person. Abu Bakr radiallahu number one, was a person who knew that if he spent everything himself and his family would be happy and content with that, as opposed to someone who their family members may be upset or they may put them into dire difficulty. And secondly, that Abu Bakr radiallahu it is possible, knew that Allah would give him more in return because he was a very affluent and very smart businessman who had the ability to create money and he knew that other wealth would come to him because he was someone who was a businessman and he was waiting for his trade to come. And Allah knows best. of sins as we mentioned before to kill a person's a person to kill their own child out of fear of having to provide for them in the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu Bukhari Muslim the Prophet was asked what is the worst of sin and he said to associate partners with Allah when he is the one who created you and then he was asked what comes next he said to kill your child out of fear that he will eat alongside you meaning out of fear that you will have to provide for them <laughs> Using this verb is more intensive than simply using the verb atta to go to. It is in an act, an evil way. In verse 32, Wala taqrabu zina, the author Ta'ala says, Allah uses the word don't come near. And the meaning of don't come near is anything that leads up to zina is also haram. So anything that takes you to that path, because if Allah had said don't commit zina, that's just the action of fornication itself. But what about everything that leads up to it, from being secluded with a woman, from speaking to her without mahram, about things that you shouldn't be speaking about, from looking at her and staring at her, and so on. And all of those things that may lead up to the actual action of zina. Because zina is the very final result of all of those steps. And Allah Azza wa says, وَلَا تَقْرَبُوا Don't come close to it, means that everything that leads up to it also then is haram. And that's what it means that it is a more intensive form. And that also means that a person doesn't take matters into their own hands. 
So all of these things that you sometimes we hear about honor killings and so on has no place in Islam. If someone has done something wrong, there is a clear route in which to get that wrong addressed and to have that wrong made right. And in this verse Allah says don't go near the property of orphans in verse 34 like 32 and that is because when people start to attempt to take from that wealth unjustly at the beginning they may only think I'm going to take a small amount or it's just a one-off but once you open that door it doesn't become a once-only occasion but they return and instead of taking a small amount that amount increases and increases and so Allah says don't go near their property meaning their wealth property meaning their wealth In verse 32, uh, 37 rather, when Allah Azza wa Jalla says, الأرض, You will certainly never split the earth apart, and then in the commentary to reach the other side by your proud will. And those are two different positions amongst the scholars with tafsir as to what it means. The first of them is what the translator has used. Takhriq al-ard means don't stamp on the ground so hard that you think that you'll break it apart or split it open. And it is a, uh, a, a, an example of how people strut around arrogantly upon the earth thinking that they own it. And then they have the audacity to claim that they don't have to worship Allah or thank Him and so on. And the second opinion is as Asiyyut Rahmullah mentions in his commentary. Meaning that you think that you will reach the other side, that you will conquer the earth and you walk in such a way as if you own it. So you walk as if within a few short steps you can cover the whole span of the earth. And both are examples of arrogance upon the earth. We have made things clear in this Quran by means of parables, warnings, and promises. 
So that limit might take you and take note. وَمَا يَزِيدُهُمْ إِلَّا نُمُورًا It only makes them run away from the truth, the more. قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ مَعَهُ آلِهَةٌ كَمَا يَقُولُونَ إِذَا لَبَتَغَوْا إِلَى بِالْعَرْشِ سَبِيلًا Say to them, if they had, as we say, been other gods together with him, they would have sought a way to the master of the throne and contended with him. In this verse, verse 42, Allah Azza wa says, Had there been other gods with him, subhanahu wa ta'ala, alongside him, then surely they would have sought a way to the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What does that mean they would have sought a way to the throne? The first opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, which is the position of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum and others from amongst the scholars of tafsir, is that they would have sought a way to the throne of Allah in order to compete with Allah in his kingdom, meaning to remove Allah and to place themselves in that position. If there were multiple gods, they would be fighting one another. So they would have made an attempt to take away Allah's throne because Allah is above all of creation to show that they have supremacy. That is the first opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir. And the second one, which is the position that was chosen by Ibn Kathir and Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Qayyim alayhim rahmatullah amongst others, is that it means that had there been other gods, they would have sought a way to the throne of Allah to ask for Allah's help as well. Meaning that those other gods would have known that they were deficient and that they were in need of Allah. So they would turn to Allah and ask Him for help. And that is also a good tafsir. And al-Shaqiti Muhammad al-Amir rahimahullah combines between both and he says both are possible meanings of this verse. But the meaning that Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah mentions is a very nice tafsir as well. That it means that it shows their deficiency that those other gods that people take themselves are dependent and reliant upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanahu wa ta'ala amma yaquluna uluwan kabira. Glory be to him. He is exalted above what they say about any partners in greatness and sublimity. Tusabbihu lahu samawatu sab'u wal ardu wa man fihin. The seven heavens and the earth and everyone in them glorify him. Wa min shay'in illa yusabbihu bihamdi. There is nothing, no creature whatsoever. That does not glorify him with praise, saying, Glory be to Allah and by his praise. But you do not understand the glorification because it is not in your language. He is all forbearing, ever forgiving, in that he does not immediately punish you. In verse 44, Allah Azza wa says, Everything in the heavens and the earth praises Allah and glorifies him, meaning that they are subservient to him subhanahu wa ta'ala, with the exception of humans and jinn. From them are those that praise Allah and glorify Him, and from them are those who turn away and disbelieve and don't praise Allah and don't acknowledge His blessing subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu al-Bukhari, he said that we would hear the food of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam making tisbih as he was eating. That he would glorify Allah as he was eating. And that is from the miracles that were given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this concept of all of the other creations of Allah apart from the jinn and the humans being able to do things that the jinns and humans are not, then that is something which is an established principle in the sharia. Because every other creation of Allah is subservient to him, they don't have free will. So whereas free will is exempted from those things. And from them is the hadith in which the Prophet spoke about the person in the grave that is being punished. That when they return to the grave and they are unable to answer the questions posed to them in the grave, they will be struck on the head with a hammer. And they will scream in such a manner that everything in the heavens and the earth hears their scream with the exception of the humans and the jinn. We are the only ones that cannot hear that scream because for us it is a test. 
And so Allah removes that from us. But everything else hears that scream because of the pain that that person or that individual experiences. And the um, the author Taala has chosen the position in verse forty-five that it's a an actual veil between those people who disbelieve and those people who read the Quran, and from amongst the foremost of those people who read the Quran is the Prophet And that is established in the Hadith in Al Bazaar when the Prophet at the in the early part of Mecca was in the Meccan period was sitting with Abu Bakr and the wife of Abu Lahab came looking for him because Allah had revealed the verses of Surah Lahab and so she was angry because she and her husband are mentioned in that Surah so she came to Abu Bakr and the Prophet was sitting next to him and she said oh, oh Abu Bakr where is your companion and she was angry she wanted to beat him or ridicule him or mock him or do something towards him and Abu Bakr just sat there because the Prophet is next to her and then she leaves so Abu Bakr says oh Messenger of Allah she didn't see you and the Prophet said that Allah placed a veil between me and her. That is one position amongst the scholars of tafsir. And the other position that is chosen by Tabarid ibn Qayyim, which is a general and more generic tafsir, is that the veil is between those people who are disbelievers and are adamant upon their disbelief and between receiving the guidance of the Quran. That is what is being referred to. Not a physical veil, but the veil that Allah places in the heart between the guidance of the Quran and between those who are adamant upon their disbelief. Because that is easier. 
In verse 52, when Allah Azza wa Jal says, فَتَسْتَجِيبُونَ بِحَمْدِهِ You will respond by praising Him. And then Asiyyuti Rahimahullah Ta'ala says, add His command or with His praise. And those are the two positions amongst the scholars of tafsir that the word praise here means by Allah's command. You will respond to His command. Or you will respond and you will praise Him because Allah is deserving of praise. Or the third position is that you will respond by being obedient to Him. By obeying Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. In verse 55, Allah just speaks about the Zabur that was given to the Prophet Dawood And the Prophet Dawood and his story will be mentioned in more detail in Surah Al-Anbiya and in Surah Sad <coughs> And Dawood if he is known for something in the Sunnah, he is known for his worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah Azza wa calls him from his thankful sleeves. And he was a person who had a continuous act of worship going on in, in, within himself and within his household. Alayhi salatu And he's someone who the Prophet praised in terms of his fasting and in terms of his prayer. And inshallah when we come to his story we'll mention those hadith. Allah Azza wa gave him the zabur. In the hadith in al-Bukhari of Abu Hurair radiallahu the Prophet said sallallahu alayhi wasallam that Allah Azza wa had made the Qur'an of Dawood easy for him. And uses the word Qur'an meaning the Zabur. Because the Qur'an can mean something which is read and recited. Allah made what was the Zabur of the Psalms of Dawood easy for him. His servants would come to light the candles. They would light the candles. And he would say to them, light the candles. And he would have all of his animals ready to go out. And before they would finish lighting the candles he would have finished from reciting the Zabur. And that is from the ways that Allah Azzawajal gave the ability of the Prophet Dawood to recite. And from the things that Allah Azzawajal gave to him was an amazing voice. As Allah will mention elsewhere in the Qur'an. 
He had an amazing voice, a voice that resonated, that was extremely beautiful. And that is why when the Prophet ﷺ passed by Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, and he heard him reciting with his amazing voice, he said to him, you have been given a flute from the flutes of Dawood, meaning that you have from the voice that was given to Dawood something similar to it in its beauty. And that is because Abu Musa was from those companions that Allah had given him an amazing voice with the recitation of the Qur'an. In verse 59, the author Rahimahullah Ta'ala is speaking about how Allah is saying that nothing prevented him from sending signs to the people of Mecca except that they, those signs or similar signs to them were rejected by those who came before. In the authentic narration of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum, it is an authentic narration to him. He says radiallahu anhum that the people of Mecca in the Meccan period asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi to change the mountain of As-Safa into a mountain of gold. And they asked him to remove the mountains that surround Mecca so that they could increase in the land space and be able to spread out further because Mecca as we know is a valley surrounded by mountains and the Kaaba is at the bottom of that valley. And that's why in the du'as of Ibrahim السلام, he refers to it as biwadin ghayri li zar. He refers to it as a valley. So there are mountains and so Anyone that's been to Mecca knows that it's always up and down and it's hilly and it's very difficult and that's why Mecca over history has been a place that has flooded. So they asked him to remove those mountains and flatten the land and to change the mountain of As-Safa to gold. And in the narration Ibn Abbas says the Prophet wanted to do so. He wanted to ask Allah for these miracles. So he was told that if we give these miracles to you Meaning, O Muhammad if we give them to you and your people disbelieve, 
then we will treat them as those who came before them. When they disbelieved in the miracles of their prophets, they were destroyed. Meaning when they demanded a miracle, then they disbelieved, they were destroyed. And if you wish, you can leave them, ignore them, and give them more time. So the Prophet ﷺ chose to give them more time. Didn't ask and demand that miracle according to this narration. And that is what the author Rahimullah Ta'ala seems to be referring to. And then Allah Azza wa Jal says, وَمَا نُرْسِلُ بِالْآيَاتِ وَاتِينَ ثَمُودَ النَّاقَةَ مُبْصِرَةً فَظَلَمُوا بِهَا We gave Thamud the she camel as a visible sign. But the other meaning is Mubsira, that it was a sign that they should have reflected upon. So not only a visible sign, but a sign that when they saw should have made them take heed and reflect and contemplate, as mentioned by Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala. In verse 60, the author Rahimullah Ta'ala mentions, Allah Azza wa Jal says to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, وَمَا جَعَلْنَا الرُّؤْيَ الَّتِي أَرَيْنَاكَ إِلَّا فِتْنَةً لِلنَّاسِ We only appointed the vision that we showed you. And then the author Rahimullah Ta'ala says, during the night journey. That's because it's mentioned in the hadith in Al-Bukhari of Ibn Abbas, that this is what the Prophet Sallallahu saw on the night journey. So he's basing that from the hadith of Al-Bukhari. And from what the Prophet Sallallahu saw on that night was the situation of the people of the fire. As well as the people of Jannah. And then Allah Azza wa mentions the tree. The cursed tree. Which is named elsewhere in the Quran as Shajaratul Zakum, The tree of Zakum That comes from the depths of the fire. And that is from the trials of the people. The way that Allah Azza wa tests people. Because the Quraysh said how you know, tree wood burns. So how can you have a tree in the depths of this fire that you claim is so much more severe than the fire of this dunya. And that is from the trials that Allah gave to them. And Allah Azza wa Jal is able to do as He pleases, subhanahu wa ta'ala, controls the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything within it. If Allah Azza wa Jal wishes for the fire to burn something, He can. And if Allah wishes for it not to burn, then it will not do so. <laughs> Go. You are a priest until the time of the fire of us. 
for the first blast. And as for any who follow you, your repayment is how? Repayment in full for you and those who follow you. Stir up and provoke any of them you can with your voice. And with your excitement of them, your singing, musical instruments, and everything else is advised people to disobey Allah. And run against them your cavalry and your infantry to abet them in acts of disobedience. And share with them in their children and their wealth, meaning and lawful wealth, such as that gained by means of usury and usurpation, and children resulting from fornication. And make the promises that there will be no resurrection or repayment. The promise of shaytan about that is nothing but delusion and falsehood. In verse 64, Allah says, وستفزز, وستفزز Stir up any of them that you can with your voice. And then the author says that it refers to singing and music. And that is the position of a number of the scholars of the past, such as Mujahid and Qatada, and it was chosen by Al-Imam Al-Tabari, that one of the ways that a person that shaitan takes a person away from Allah Azza wa Jal is by making them listen to music or by making them listen to lyrics that invite or press or, or play, place within their hearts a heedlessness and neglect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the remind of the Quran. And that's why Ibn Taymiyyah, Rahimahullah Ibn Qayyim and others used to say that a person who has music in their hearts will not have the Quran. The two do not mix and meet together. And so someone who is engulfed in music even if they memorize some of the Qur'an or parts of the Qur'an or all of the Qur'an, you will find that their attachment and understanding of it and benefit from it is very little and very limited. And someone who Allah Azza wa has blessed with an opening to the Qur'an and understanding the Qur'an, you will find that they don't like music and it's not something which they enjoy listening to and it's not something which gives them even that type of solace. To the extent that I found from our teachers, those who, even though it is allowed to listen to nasheeds and Islamic uh, kind of songs or nasheeds, uh, poems, they didn't like those types of nasheeds that were very singy-songy in nature. But they preferred those types of poems that were based on knowledge and Islamic sciences and so on. And that's because they were so busy with this knowledge of the Qur'an and the knowledge of the Sunnah of the Prophet that just the sound of something which even though it's not music, sounds something similar to it was enough to make them dislike it and just it would put them off. Saying you from drowning and bringing you to shore to dry land, you turn away from affirmation of the unity. 
He feels secure against him, causing the shore to swallow you up, as happened to Harun, or standing against you, except as a sudden swallow of stones, as happened to the people of Lord. Then you will find no one to be your guardian and protect you. In verse 71, the author Ta'ala, concerning the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, On the day that they are rising, we summon every people with their Imam. What does Imam mean here in this context? An Imam literally is someone or something that is followed. As the Prophet said concerning the prayer, The Imam in the prayer is there for you to follow. So what does it mean here in this context? The author, the author mentions two positions. The first of them is that it is the record of deeds. That they will be resurrected and called with their record of deeds as an evidence and a proof against them. Or for them. And that is the position that Ibn Kathir ta'ala, chose. The second position as he mentions is that they will be called and summoned with their prophet. With their prophet. And this is the position of Mujahid and Qatada. And the third position amongst the scholars of tafsir is that they will be summoned with their revelation, the book that was revealed to them. And Imam al-Tabaj said, it is general, meaning that it refers to all of this. It is everything that a person will be summoned with that they should have followed, that, that will be used for against them or for them as a proof, which includes their prophets, it includes, includes the revelations that were given to them, and it includes their record of deeds. ومن كان في هذه أعمى فهو في الآخرة أعمى وأضل سبيلا 
Those who are blind to the truth in this world will be blind to the path of salvation and the recitation of the Quran in the next world, and even further off the path. This was revealed by the tribe of Tabib who asked the Prophet وسلم, to turn their valley into a sanctuary and trust him to do so. They were very near to enticing you away for some of what we have revealed to you, hoping that you would invent something against us. Then, if you had done that, they would have taken you and made it to them. If we had not been confirmed in the truth by protecting you from going wrong, you would have leaned towards them a little, owing to their endless devices and insistence. That is a clear statement that the Prophet وسلم, did not incline to them or approach them. Then, if you had inclined, you would have let you taste a double punishment in life and a double punishment in death, meaning double the punishment of others in this world and the next. You would not have found any helpers against us to defend you. Verse 76, the following was revealed when the Jews said to him, If you are a prophet, then you should go to Syria. This is the land of the prophets. They were very near to scaring you from the land in Medina with the object of expelling you from it. But had they done so, they would only remain there a short time after you, and then they would have been destroyed. That was the pattern with those we sent before you as our messengers. Allah's pattern was to prove about the destruction of those who expelled the messengers sent to them. In verse 76, the author Rahimullah Ta'ala says and gives us the cause of revelation, the statement of the Jews that they said to the Prophet that Syria or Sham, which is the Levant area, is the land of the Prophet, so why don't you go there? And this is based on the position, this tafsir, that this verse is a Madani verse, and that's one of the exceptions that we mentioned at the beginning of the surah that some of the scholars said that these verses are Madani. And Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala says that if the verse is Makki and he supports the position that all of the surah is Makki as do others, then it refers to the people of Quraysh. That the Quraysh are the ones saying and trying to expel the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as they did in the Meccan period. Establish the prayer from the time the sun declines until the darkening of the night. A reference to the prayers of Lot, Asr, Maghrib, and Nisha, and also the recitation at dawn. A reference to the prayer of Sobh. The dawn recitation is certainly witnessed by both the angels of the night and the angels of the day. Allah Azza wa Jal in this verse, verse 78, mentions the different times of the day and the night. And this is used by some of the scholars and Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti rahimahullah from amongst them to show as a proof from the Qur'an the five prayers of the day. Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib and Isha. That even though Allah doesn't name them specifically by name, Allah refers to their timings and they include therefore all of them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لِذُلُوكِ الشَّمْسِ When the sun declines, referring to Dhuhr and Asr. And غَسَقَ الْلَيْلِ When the darkening of the night takes place referring to Maghrib and Isha 
and then Quran al-Fajr referring to the prayer of the Fajr. In the Quran al-Fajr kana mashhuda, for indeed the recitation of the Fajr time is something that is witnessed, meaning by the angels of the day and the night. And that is mentioned in the hadith of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu al-Bukhari that the Prophet said sallallahu alaihi wasallam that the angels of the day and the angels of the night meet at the time of Fajr. And then he recited this verse: In the Quran al-Fajr kana mashhuda. In verse 79, the author Ta'ala, because Allah Azzawajal speaks about the night prayer as nafila, as something which is extra. And the author in his tafsir mentions that it is an obligation for you, meaning for the Prophet And this is the position of many of the scholars of Islam and tafsir, al-Tabari being amongst them, from the foremost amongst them. And that is because Allah Azzawajal says to the Prophet in Surah Al-Muzzammil, as we will mention when we come to the 29th juz of the Qur'an, Spend the night awake in prayer except for a short period. Half of it or slightly less. Or slightly more than half. And so the Prophet is not reported that he would leave the night prayer except on very rare occasions. He would pray the night prayer. وسلم, and that was something which Allah made obligatory upon him because it is one of the ways that Allah made it easy for him to cope and bear the pressure of prophethood and the pressure of receiving the revelation, the responsibility of receiving the revelation. So then the scholars say, what does it mean then, nafilatan lak, and if it comes to the Prophet if it's an obligation for him, how is it then optional for him? How is it uh, something which is extra for him? If we say that it is an obligation, Ibn Qayyim ta'ala says, nafila here means that it will raise him in station. An increase in station. That is the meaning of nafila as it relates to the Prophet and as it relates to everyone else. It is an optional extra prayer. And that is because through that raising of station, Allah says He will have the maqam al mahmud, the praiseworthy station. And that praiseworthy station, as we know in the hadith, the Prophet said, Whoever says after the adhan is made makes the dua, Allahumma rabba hadi da'wat al tama the dua that we recite after the adhan will be given my station of uh, will be given my intercession on Yawm Al-Qiyamah and in the hadith of the intercession of the prophets when the people will go to each of the prophets on Yawm Al-Qiyamah they will eventually come to the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam after every other prophet from Adam and Nuh and Ibrahim and Musa and Isa alayhi wassalam all of them have said have said that we can't or we won't make this intercession the prophet sallallahu will say ana laha ana laha it is for me it is for me and he will come and prostrate before the throne of Allah and stay there as long as Allah wills. And Allah will teach him manners and words of praise that he never knew before in this life. And that is when Allah Azza wa will then say to him, O Muhammad, raise your head, ask, you will be given, request, it will be granted, intercede, and that intercession will be accepted. Verse 18. Then when the Prophet Say, 
and make my living myself sincere in such a way as to ensure that my heart is not turned back to it. And grant me supporting authority direct from your presence, by which you help me against your enemies. In verse 8, Allah says, and he commands the Prophet ﷺ to make this dua, O oh Allah, make my entry. Give me, adkhilni mudkhala sidqin wa khrijni mukhraja sidq. O Allah, give me an entry that is sincere, a leaving that is sincere. What does the entry and leaving refer to? Some of the scholars said it refers to death, entering the grave, and resurrection, leaving the grave. That is one position amongst the scholars of tafsir. But the majority of them have chosen the position that As-Suyuti, rahimahullah, has mentioned, such as Al-Tabani, Ibn Kathir, and others. That the leaving, the exiting, refers to his exiting of Mecca, and the entry refers to him entering into the city of Medina. And that is an authentic hadith as you can see. The hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu at the conquest of Mecca, the Prophet entered the Kaaba when he took the key from Uthman, Ibn Abi Talha, the man who had the, the gatekeeper of the key of the Kaaba, and he went in and he destroyed the idols, and as he was doing so, he was reciting this verse. says that they ask you concerning the ruh, they ask you concerning the spirit, the ruh and this is one of those places we mentioned in the introduction to tafsir al-jalalain we said that Rasulullah rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, in his portion of the tafsir, stuck through and with the methodology that al-mahalli his teacher established in the, in the portion of tafsir that he did Rasulullah didn't change the tafsir of his teacher and often when he refers to something he will often refer to things that his teacher has already mentioned in his portion of his tafsir. And he stuck to the same methodology. And as we come down to Surah Al-Kahf, actually in its reading, you will find that it's very difficult to ascertain. If you didn't know that there were two of them and when one started, where one started and the other one finished, it would be difficult to ascertain just by reading whose tafsir was whose. And that was the methodology that Rasulullah abided by out of respect and love for his teacher. 
But he differed with his teacher sometimes and he didn't stick to his methodology on every single occasion. And one of those occasions is here. And that is concerning the ruh. As Al-Mahalli later on in the Quran, I think in Surah Safat or Sad, when he speaks about the spirit, he defines the spirit in his own way as being a very subtle life form that connects to the body and he gives his definition. And as Sayyuti will mention as we come to the conclusion that one of the places that he differed with his teacher is in his definition of a ruh based on this verse because Allah says that the spirit is from the knowledge of my Lord and you don't know it. So he says that I didn't take the position of my teacher and instead I took the position of what Allah mentions apparently in the Quran. And this is one of those rare occasions where he differs from his teacher. This is one of those uh, verses about which there is a difference of opinion. Those scholars who said that this, some of the verses are Madani. This is one of those verses that they are referring to. And this will come when we come, inshallah, to the beginning of Surah Al-Kahf. Concerning what is mentioned, concerning the cause of revelation of that surah, this verse is part of that story concerning what the Jews said. That narration though, however, as we will mention, is a weak narration. But there is an authentic narration in Al-Bukhari and Muslim that some of the Jews passed by the Prophet and they said to one another, let's speak to him and ask him concerning the ruh, the spirit. So some of them said, don't ask him. Because when you ask him, revelation comes and sometimes that revelation isn't very good about us. Leave him alone. Another said, no, we will ask him. So they went and they asked him concerning the ruh and Allah revealed to him this verse. And no doubt when Allah in the Quran says, Yes'alunak, they ask you concerning, there is a question that has been asked from the, to the Prophet Whether we know what that question was or the form of the story that it came in, the cause behind that revelation in an authentic narration or not, it is clear that, that the Prophet asked the question because that is what Allah says in the Quran. Yes'alunak, they ask you and then Allah responds to that question. The problem is that sometimes those narrations are weak, so we don't know the story behind it, and sometimes they are authentic, and Allah knows best. If we wish, we could take away what we've revealed to you in the Quran by erasing it from people's hearts and eliminating the physical copies of the Quran. And then we would not find any to guard you from us. But for mercy from your Lord, Allah has ensured its continuance. His favor to you is indeed immense, in revealing it to you and giving you the praiseworthy positions and other favors. In verse 88, the author is referring to the verse of the Quran, which Allah says concerning the statement, لو نشاء لقلنا مثل هذا إن هذا إلا أساطير الأولين. If we pleased, we could say something similar. Allah says, if they were all of their people together, one of the humans, one of the jinn, they wouldn't be able to do so.
In verse 90 onwards for the next three or four verses, these are the demands that the Quraysh made of the Prophet as we mentioned before in the tafsir of the Quran. When Allah says that they made demands of you asking for signs, now Allah Azza wa is telling us very openly and clearly, explicitly, what they demanded from the Prophet And as you will see, they are the most outrageous claims that leave behind no room for faith. If Allah was to show them everything and give them everything that they demanded, there would be no room for them to have to believe in anything because every sign would be clear. They ask to see Allah Himself, they ask to see the angels, they ask for palaces, they ask for rivers, they ask for gardens, they ask for the sky to drop upon them. What then is left for them? What room is there left for doubt after all of those signs? And that is the outrageous claims that they make that we mentioned before in the Quran. Allah Azza wa Jal will now mention them to us explicitly from verse 90 onwards. Whenever the days 
In this verse, uh, in the hadith in Anas radiallahu the Prophet was asked, O Messenger of Allah, because Allah says that He will He will resurrect them in this way. And in other verses, Allah says that they will be resurrected on their faces. A man asked the Prophet in the authentic hadith, O Messenger of Allah, how when Allah cause a person to walk upon their faces, they will be resurrected on their faces, meaning that they will walk upon them. The Prophet said the way, same way that Allah makes them walk upon their feet. That Allah will change them and make them walk in. I have a question for you today. It's been a few days since we did a question and asked. And that is that Allah Azza in this verse says that the people on the day of judgment who are the disbelievers will be resurrected umyan wa bukman wa summa, blind, dumb and deaf. But in other verses of the Quran, Allah clearly says that they will speak, that they will see, that they will hear. Allah says, Rabbana absarna wa sami'na farji'na na'mal saliha. Our Lord, we have seen and heard, so let us go back and we will do good deeds. And Allah mentions to us in the Quran that they will speak to Malik and they will say, Wanadaw ya Malik, kul yaqdi alina rabbuk. O Malik, cause your Lord, ask your Lord to destroy us. So how do we reconcile between this? Allah is saying they are dumb, deaf and blind, meaning they can't speak, they can't hear, they can't see. But the announcement in the Quran, Allah tells us that they will see and they will speak and they will hear. Pharaoh, I 
choose your choice or turn aside from good. فَأَرَادَ أَنْ يَسْتَفِزَّهُمْ مِنَ الْأَرْضِ فَأَغْرَقْنَاهُ وَمَنْ مَعَهُ جَمِيعًا He meaning Pharaoh wants to scare them, meaning Musa and his people, from the land of Egypt. But we drowned him and every one of those with him. وَقُلْنَا مِنْ بَعْدِهِ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ اسْكُنُوا الْأَرْضِ We said to the tribe of Israel after that, inhabit the land. فَإِذَا جَاءَ وَعْدُ الْآخِرَةِ مِنَّا بِكُمْ and when the promise of the final hour of the next world comes, we will produce you as a motley crowd, both you and them. We have sent it in the Quran down with the truth that it contains. And with truth it, and with truth it has come down, and it was revealed without any change. We sent you, Muhammad. Only to bring good news of the garden to those who believe and to give warning of the fire to those who disbelieve. We have devised up the Quran, meaning we have sent it down in parts of the course of 20 or 23 years, so you may recite it to mankind at intervals, slowly and deliberately, over time, so that they, might, so that they may understand it. And we have sent it down little by little. Into, into their best interests. Say to the unbelievers of Mecca, believe in it or do not believe in it. This is a threat to them. Certainly, when it is recited to them, those who have given knowledge before it, meaning before the Quran is revealed, a reference to the believers of the people of the book fall on their faces in frustration. وَيَقُولُونَ سُبْحَانَ رَبِّنَا إِنْ كَانَ وَعْدُ رَبِّنَا لَمَفْعُولًا Saying, Glory be to our Lord. This is to absolve Allah from any accusation of breaking His promise. The promise of our Lord was truly fulfilled. His promise was that He would send a messenger, and He did indeed send the Prophet وَيَحِرُّونَ لِلْأَذْقَانِ يَبْكُونَ وَيَزِيدُهُمْ Weeping, they fall to the ground in frustration. And it, meaning the Quran, increases them in humility towards Allah. Verse 110. The Prophet used to say, Oh Allah, O oh, oh, Merciful. The unbeliever said, He forbids us to worship two gods when he himself does so. And this was real. Say to them, Call on Allah, or call on the O oh, Merciful. Whichever you call upon, or name to the leader of them, saying, Oh Allah, or Oh, oh Merciful, both of these names being excellent. The most beautiful names are his. This includes these two names as in the hadith. Allah is he, other than whom there is no other God. Ar-Rahman, O Merciful, Ar-Rahim, Most Merciful, Al-Malik, the King, Al-Fujur, Al-Fi, Pure, As-Salam, Perfect Peace, Al-Mu'min, Bright of Security, Al-Muhimbin, Safeguarder, Al-Aziz, Almighty, Al-Jabbar, the Compiler, the Mutakabir, Supremely Great, Al-Khalik, Greater, Al-Barik, Maker, Al-Musawwir, Giver of Home, Al-Ghafar, Al-Forgiving, Al-Qahar, All-Conquering, Al-Wahhab, Al-Giving, Al-Razaq, Provider, Al-Fattah, Justicider, Al-Alim, All-Knowing, Al-Qabir, Contractor, Al-Basr, Expander, Al-Qafir, Abaser, Al-Wafir, Exalter, Al-Mu'iz, Honorer, Al-Mulim, Dishonorer, Al-Salim, All-Hearing, Al-Basir, All-Seeing, Al-Hakim, Judge, Al-Ad, just, Al-Azim, or Sajul, Al-Qadim, or Al-Awad, Al-Halim, or Bearing, Al-Azim, Magnificent, Al-Ghafur, Forgiving, Al-Shakur, Al-Zakur, 
العليم والغايب الجليل الحق الكفار بالجريس الحفيظ بزاره المفيد مينتينا الحسيب ربنا الجليل مجسد الكريم جنوس الغفير واشكر المدير كريت ريسبونس الواسع والمخمسين الحكيم والوائد الودود لوفين المجيد جلوريوس البارد ريزر الشهيد ويتنس الحق الترولي ريو الوكيل غاديان القوي والشرونج المجيد شو الوليد بروتكتر الحميد ريزوالد المحصي ابريزر المبدئ اوريجينيتر المعيد ريستورا المحكي الوانتجز لايف المميت الوانت فورد تداي الحي ديفين القيوم صوت سيني الوالد ريتش الماجد دنوبو الواحد وان الاحد اسكو الونس الصامت الراس مستسين ابوت الغالب بوكاوكو المحترف موسكاوكو المقدم ادفانسر المؤخر ديلاير الاول كفاس الاخر سلاس الظاهر عبود الباطن انويت الوليد ديفرنت المتعال هاي كروكت اللوف والجود التواب الثاني المنتقم ايزاك الرفنت العفو قادمه الوعود فورجنجو مالك الملك ماستر اوف كيندم ذو الجلال والاكرام لورد اوف ماجستي اند جنرالتي المقصر كريتفول الجامع جابر الغني ريتش بيون ميد المغني انريتشر المانع انكوتشبل الضار الفلتر النافع بنفتر النور لايتس الهادي بايت البديع اوريجينيتر الباقي الابايدي الوالد الانهريتر الرشيد رايكبرت اسطابور مونتيشن اكتبني ريليتد ولا تجهر بصلاتك ولا تخافت بها do not be too loud in your prayer in your recitation or the idolaters may hear you and abuse you and abuse your Quran and want to say to them or too quiet in it which would prevent your companions from benefiting from it in the country of Bas Montana, as you can see, as I mentioned at the beginning of today's lesson, this is the second extremely long narration that Rasulullah rahimahullah ta'ala mentions in his tafsir. And this hadith concerning the 99 names of Allah Azza wa Jal is a, the narration is in a tirmidhi, as he mentions, it is a weak hadith. So we know that the Prophet, that Allah Azza wa Jal has many names and 99 of them if you know them and encompass them you have Jannah but those 99 names of Allah are not mentioned in a single hadith and the hadith that mention them in a single narration like this one are weak and so some of these names are not names that belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and frankly some of the translations that have been given to those names are not very good translations either but we don't have the time to go through each one and speak about them in detail However, the names of Allah are mentioned in numerous hadith that if you bring them together will give you the 99. And from the shaykh and the scholars that have done this in our times is Shaykh Abdul Razak al-Badr, Hafizahullah ta'ala and others from amongst the scholars who have gone through those various books of hadith and extracted those names and put them together. So then, the end of the verse Allah Azza wa says do not be loud in your prayer or too quiet in it. And this is mentioned in the hadith of Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu and Sahih al-Bukhari. That at the beginning of Islam, the Prophet ﷺ used to pray with the companions in hiding, in secret. He would recite out loud to them. And then when the Quraysh would pass by and they would hear him reciting his Qur'an, they would mock the recitation. So then the Prophet ﷺ would recite so quietly they could, they, they could barely hear him. Meaning, the companions could barely hear his recitation. So Allah said, don't recite so loud, nor so quietly that no one can hear, but rather take a middle path between the two. وقل الحمد لله الذي لم يتخذ ولدا ولم يكن له شريك في الملك ولم يكن له ولي من الذل. السيد فاسبت الله 
who has had no son, who has no part in his kingdom, and who needs no one to protect him from abasement. He is not abased. So he needs no helper, nor does he need anyone to absolve him from taking a child or partner, or from anything that does not befit him. And proclaim his greatness repeatedly. This ayah is evidence that Allah deserves every form of praise because of the perfection of his essence and because he is unique in his attributes. In his Musnad, Imam Ahmed related from Mu'ad al Hani that the Messenger of Allah used to say, The ayah of might is praising Allah who has had no son and who has no partner in his kingdom. And Allah knows best. And this is the last verse of Surah. Al-Isra, Allah says, He has no need for anyone to protect him from a base with meaning from weakness or because Allah is in any way deficient. He doesn't need someone else to help him because he needs that assistance, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this narration that is mentioned from the Muslim of Imam Ahmad of Mu'ad al-Juhani is a weak hadith. It's not an authentic hadith, a hadith of Mu'ad. And this comes to the end of the tafsir of Surah Al-Isra and the portion of the tafsir of Jalalain that was authored by Jalaluddin al-Suyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, who died in the year 911 of the Hijrah. And now the next two pages is some of it his conclusion and some of it a dream that was seen by one of his contemporaries. The author, Jalaluddin al-Suyuti, said, This is the end of my continuation and completion of the commentary of the Noble Quran. That was written by the Shaykh and Imam, the precise scholar, Jalaluddin al-Ma'adi al-Shafi'i. May Allah be pleased with him. I applied myself to completing it and directed my attention to important points which will prove beneficial, Allah willing. I wrote it within the amount of time appointed for the one spoken to, meaning Musa, i.e. 40 nights, and made it a means to obtain the guidance of bliss. In fact, it's derived from the book which it is intended to complete and on which I relied in dealing with it, the ambiguous ayah. May Allah have mercy on a man who looks with a fair eye at it and finds an error in it, and then informs me of it. I have said, I praise Allah my Lord, if he guides me when I bring something, she lies in spite of my powerlessness and weakness. Whatever errors I have made, I will reject. Whatever is accepted is for me, even if it is only a letter. If I did not send my attention to any errors attributed to my predecessor, it was because I know that I am unable to delve into these matters. In any case, I pray that Allah will grant benefit from this work and use it to open cold hearts, blind eyes and deaf ears. Whoever is blind in this world is blind in the next world. May Allah provide him the guidance of the path of truth, success, and awareness and realization of the fine points of Allah's word. And by it, may he make us among those whom Allah has blessed, the prophets, the men of truth, the martyrs and the righteous. What excellent companies these people are. And so this is the conclusion of Ta'ala, in which you see not only the efforts that he makes, but his humbleness towards his teacher, saying that I am not worthy of correcting some of his positions that he had, even though, as we said, he did correct some of them, or not correct in the sense that he, he corrected what his teacher said, but he chose a different tafsir other than the one that his teacher had taken. And that is his form of showing that he disagreed with that with the respect that he has for his teacher. And he says that I completed this in the same time frame that Musa salam went for the meeting with his Lord. And that is 40 nights as we mentioned in the introduction to this series. He finished writing it on Sunday, <coughs> 10th of Shawwal, 370, having started it at the beginning of Ramadan in the same year. He finished a fair copy of it on Wednesday, 6th of Safa, 371. Shaykh Shamsuddin Muhammad ibn Abi And it should be 870, not 370. 870. It is not, uh, Siyuti is from the scholars of the 10th century, not the 4th century. Shaykh Shamsuddin Muhammad ibn Abi al-Khatib of Fulhi said, My friend, the scholar Shaykh Khanabuddin al-Mahadi, the brother of our Shaykh, Jalaluddin al-Mahadi, may Allah have mercy on them both, reports to me that he saw his brother, 
شیخ جلال الدین میگوید ایپاس پیم و جواب کردیم اسکالر شیخ جلال الدین سیو بود The author of this continuation of the Quran. The Shaykh took this continuation in his hands and looked through it and said to the author, which of them is better, my composition or yours? He added, look, and pointed out seven places in it. It was as if this indicated places in it to which he objected with gentleness. Whenever the author of this continuation was shown something, he answered it while the Shaykh was smiling and laughing. Our Shaykh, Jalaluddin, Abdul Rahman ibn Abi Bakr al-Siyubi, the, the author of this continuation said, what I believe and I'm certain of, is that what Shaykh Jalaluddin al Ayadi, may Allah have mercy on him, wrote in his portion is better than my writing on several levels. How could that not be the case when, when what I wrote, he had clearly derived from his work? As for that which was in the dream above, perhaps by it the Shaykh was indicating the few places in which I differed from him, regarding a few very slight points. I do not think that there could be more than ten instances of that. One example is that the Shaykh said concerning Noah's heart, the wolf is a subtle body by which the human being is given life when it penetrates it. I followed him at first and mentioned this definition to the endorse of hate. Then I turned from him by the words of the Almighty, they will ask about the wolf. Say, the wolf is my Lord's concern. He have only been given a little knowledge. This is explicit, or close to being explicit, in saying that the wolf, meaning the spirit, is part of Allah's knowledge, which we do not know, and therefore it is more appropriate to refrain from defining it. This is why Sheikh Jaluddin ibn Asluki said in the judgment of Jawami, Muhammad did not speak about the wolf, and therefore he refrained from doing so. Another point is that the Shaykh said in Surah Al-Hajj, the Saviour Salah said to the Jews, I mentioned that in Surah Al-Baqarah and Alif or Christians, he said to have a second view. That is something that is known, especially among our colleagues, the Fuqaha. In Al-Minhaj we find the Minhaj, in Al-Minhaj, which is a book of, of, of uh, Shafi'i Fiqh. In Al-Minhaj we find the Samaritans among the Jews and the Saviours among the Christians disagree about the basis of their deen. In the commentary on Al-Minhaj, al-Shafi'i, may Allah be pleased with him, stated that the Sabians are a sect of the Christians. I do not recall their position. This is as though the Shaykh, may Allah have mercy on him, was indicating the life of this point, meaning in my dream. Allah knows best, which is correct, and all returns to him. And that is the end of the conclusion of As-Siyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala. And I'm not sure why the translators in this edition didn't translate the introduction at the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, but that would have been something nice to do. And this and this shows you the, the humbleness of a Siyuti Allah before his teacher, even though, as I said previously, one of the things that makes a Siyuti such an amazing scholar of, his, of tafsir is his wide and extensive understanding of the Sunnah and his knowledge of the narrations of the companions and the early scholars of Islam. And I think, in my very humble view, that that is something which he has over and above his teacher, Al Mahalli, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. This Surah is Mecca, except for Ayah 78 and 82, the end of 101, which are Medina. It has 110 Ayahs and was sent down after Al-Rashiyah. The 18th Surah of the Quran, Surah Al-Kahf, near known as the cave and in some narrations also called Ashab Al-Kahf, the people of the cave. That is another name of the Surah that is given to it. It is a Mecca Surah, as we mentioned at the beginning of Surah Al-Isra. It is a Surah that speaks about, uh, that Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said, Bani Israel or Isra and Kaf and Maryam and Taha and so on are from the early revelations meaning from the Meccan period and this is a surah that I think most of us are very familiar with in terms of its virtues and in terms of its stories and the stories that Allah mentions within this surah are unique to it and from its virtues is that whoever memorizes the first ten verses will be saved from the trial of the Dajjal and from its virtues is whoever reads it on a Friday will be given a light from one Friday to the next and these ahadith are I think extremely well known. And there is a, a, some of the causes of revelation concerning some of these stories that inshallah ta'ala we will mention when we come to that point.
Sorry, and before Ismail begins, so this is not the beginning of Al-Mahalli's tafsir of the Quran. So what you will find in some places there will be repetition, like for example in Alhamdulillah, even though we cover this, right? We cover this in Fatiha, we cover this in An'am. But from Al-Mahalli's point of view, this is the first time he's writing about it. So that's why he will repeat some things and go into detail concerning issues that we've already discussed in some detail. This is ascribing all good and beauty to him, as it is confirmed for Allah. As to whether this is a pronouncement of faith, praise, or both. The most useful view is that it is the third. Who has said that the book, meaning the Quran, to his slave, Muhammad وسلم, and has put no crookedness, meaning no disagreement or contradiction in it. So we can see then from the very first verse that he is going into detail concerning the meaning of Alhamdulillah and the praise of Allah and is it a statement or is it a dua as we mentioned before and as we said and as he says himself that the strongest of those positions that it is both that it is both and that's why he says it is the third of those positions that Allah sent down the book upon his servant and didn't make it crooked so in the very first verse of Surah Al-Kahf Allah speaks about himself by praising himself mentions the Quran and mentions the revelation and if you look towards the last few verses of the previous surah, Surah Al-Isra, you will find those three same concepts mentioned of Tawheed, of the Qur'an, of Revelation, and of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's straight to warn the unbelieving spirit of violent force and the punishment direct from him. And to give the good news to the believers, those who write actions that for them there is an excellent reward. A place in the garden in which they will remain forever. And to all those unbelievers who say, Allah has a son. In verse 5, as we've said previously, those who say that Allah has a child. That Allah has a child. They have no knowledge of this place, neither they nor their fathers, nor was it stated by their ancestors before them. This is a monstrous utterance which has issued from their mouths. These words are terrible. What they say is nothing but the lies. Perhaps you may destroy yourself with grief, chasing after them, meaning after they turn away from you, if they do not believe in these words, meaning the Quran. The adverbial phrase with grief, SFM, expresses the exasperation and sorrow which the Prophet experienced on account of his eagerness for his people to believe. We made everything, animals, plants, trees, rivers, and other things on the earth, to be adornment for it, so that we could test them to see whose actions are the best, meaning which of them are least greedy with respect to the adornment of this world. We will certainly make everything on it a barren wasteland, infertile, dry land with no plants in it. Do you consider, meaning think, that the companions of the cave and al 
Sabda Musa bin Isa, meaning this version, the Prophet asked about the story. One of the most remarkable of our signs. Do you think that their story was the greatest marvel among the signs of Allah and other signs, or indeed that it was the most extraordinary? That is not, in fact, the case. In verse 9 onwards, Allah begins the first of the unique stories found in this surah. And what I mean by unique stories is that these are stories that are not mentioned or repeated elsewhere in the Quran. In the four stories in this surah, the story of the people of the cave, the man with the two gardens, the story of Musa and Khadr and the story of Dhul Qarnayn. And even though the story of Musa is mentioned elsewhere in the Quran, this particular incident of his and, and situation or experience is particular to Surah Al-Kahf. There is a cause of revelation that is mentioned in some of the books of narrations and, and in many of the books of Tafsir. And that is that the Quraysh in the Meccan period came to a point in their duel, if you like, with the Prophet wasallam and their disagreement with him, that they wanted to try to find a way to stop people from accepting Islam. Every time the Quraysh attempt to persecute and torture and oppress the Muslims, more and more people start to accept Islam. So it's having the opposite effect. And so they try different things. From there is what we mentioned of the narration of Abu Walid, when he goes to the Prophet and says, do you want wealth, do you want money, tell me what you want, I will give it to you, just stop preaching. They tried various things. One of those things is that they said, let's try to show there is a false prophet, there is a liar, there is fake, by asking him questions that he cannot answer. So how do we get these questions now? has to be something that speaks to him about his revelation, about prophethood. They said, why don't some of us go to Medina, to the Jewish scholars and rabbis of Medina? Because they are people who also claim to have revelation, a prophet, a message from God, because the concept of prophethood and revelation was alien to the Arabs. They didn't have this concept amongst them. It was something that the Christians and Jews, however, were very familiar with. Let's send them to Medina, let them go and ask them for questions that only a prophet could answer. So they sent two representatives to Medina, and they say that there's a man in Mecca who claims to be a prophet. What do you know from your scriptures that only a prophet would know? Because he doesn't read your scriptures. Give us a question that he wouldn't know the answers to. So they asked three questions. The first of them is the story of the people of the cave. What is their story? The second of them is, tell us about the man who conquered the east and the west, meaning Dhul Qarnayn. And the third is, ask him about the spirit. So they came back to the Prophet ﷺ, or they came back to the people of Mecca and gave them the questions. The people of Mecca came to the Prophet ﷺ and they asked him. And the Prophet ﷺ said, come tomorrow and I will tell you. But he didn't say, inshaAllah. So the next day they came and no revelation came. So then he said, give me another day. They came the following day, the third day, no revelation came. And this continues for two weeks and the Quraysh are rejoicing because they think that they finally got him and he's unable to answer their questions. And the Prophet ﷺ is upset because he's wondering why revelation has ceased. And then Allah brings him revelation and from that then is the verse that will come later on in this surah. I don't say that you will do anything tomorrow except that you say, inshaAllah, if Allah wills. That narration in its entirety is weak. From the best of my research, it is a weak narration. However, clearly these questions were asked at some point because that is the narrative in which Allah Azza wa relays them as we mentioned concerning the story or the, the, the verse concerning the Ruh in Surah Al-Isra. And we mentioned then another narration that is authentic in the Sahih collections of Hadith. So it's possible that this happened in a different way or some of that was true or not. The point is that the narration as it's been related in the books of Hadith is weak. 
But that doesn't dismiss some of it happening in that form or in a different form. And Allah Azza wa knows best. So in verse 9 onwards, Allah Azza wa starts with that first story, and that is the story of the people of the cave. And Allah says, Am hasibta kahfi raqim. Do you consider that the companions of the cave and the raqim? And the raqim is something which the scholars differed over as to what it means. Some of them said that it refers to the valley, a valley in which the cave would be found. Another said it is the name of the mountain in which there was the cave. Another said it is the name of the cave itself. But the position of many of the scholars of Tafsir, Ibn Kathir and Al-Tabari and others, and as you can see here, it's the position of Al-Suyuti rahimahullah as well, Ali rahmatullah ajma'in, or the position of Al-Mahalli, I should start saying now. Uh, Al-Mahalli is that it refers to an inscription, a tablet upon which the story of the people of the cave or their names was written. And Allah is saying that that is from our wondrous signs. Now, if our Nisya to Ila remember with the noble young man, the way you see Nisya is the plural of Sata, meaning a perfect young man, took refuge in a cave, fearing for their faith on account of their unbelieving people. In verse 10, as you can appreciate, this is a surah that we could do a very lengthy tafsir on, but we're just going to pick some points here and there. Allah Azza wa praises these people in the Quran for being young. And we know generally in the Sunnah and in our religion, we respect our elders and we often offer them a position of respect. But Allah Azza wa in the Quran has spoken elsewhere of how one of the justifications of the people of disbelief is that they follow the path of their forefathers. So in this surah Allah Azza wa is shown that's how sometimes faith and righteousness and guidance comes from the young. And that is why the Prophet Sallallahu focused a lot of his energy on the younger companions, especially in the relaying of hadith and narrations and the memorizing of the Qur'an and the preservation of the sunnah. He used to spend a lot of time with the younger companions because they would be the ones who would live long enough by the permission of Allah to spread that knowledge and to teach the people and to pass down that knowledge from generation to generation. And Allah Azza wa at the beginning of this story Allah will mention snippets and then he will go back and speak about it in more detail. So Allah Azza wa gives us a summary and then he goes back into more detail. As the people of the cave enter into the cave, they make dua and they ask Allah for mercy and for guidance. And Allah begins with mercy first because guidance is from the forms of mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if not the greatest of Allah's mercy upon his creation. So up to verse 13 is the summary. From verse 14 onwards, Allah Azza wa will go and repeat the story in more detail. And we don't know the background of these of these young men, or where they lived, or their names, or their situation from any authentic source. Meaning neither in the Quran does it speak about that, nor 
did the Prophet ﷺ mention? For the books of Tafsir are full of Israelite traditions that speak about their background, that they were of Byzantine descent, that they lived in an area that their people used to worship gods besides them, that the seven or the, the young men, the group of them, didn't actually know one another. They weren't related, they weren't brothers, they weren't friends. But what unites them is their Iman in Allah. And that is where they become united and that is how they become friends with one another. Those narrations are mentioned in the books of Tafsir Ibn Kathir and others mention them. However, none of them are authentic. And as we said before, Allah Azza wa Jal, when He mentions these stories, wants us to focus on the lesson rather than the, the trivial details of where they came from and what their names were and how they dressed and what they ate and all of those other details that we are normally accustomed to in reading stories. <laughs> In verse 14, Allah says that these people stood before their king. And Allah says, we made their hearts firm and strong. Meaning that when they were discovered as people who worshipped other than, worshipped one Allah, one God alone, Allah and they didn't worship the idols that their people used to worship, they were presented before their king, who was a tyrant and an evil man. And he asked them and demanded an explanation from them. Allah praises these people, even though they're not prophets in the Qur'an, but Allah praises them and mentions their story because they were able to stand as just a few people in front of their king, their leader, their townspeople, their family, their relatives, everyone in that city, and be firm upon Iman and say that we only worship Allah alone because they had the option to say, actually, it's all a mistake. Actually, no, we're going to worship your gods. They could have apostated or... Even if they don't apostatize, they could say and hide their iman and actually show disbelief. And this is a lesson for the people of Mecca, the companions, because they would go through a similar process of being given that difficult choice. Do you stand up and make yourself counted as someone who believes in Allah? Or do you hide? And do you try to find a different way out? And Allah praises them because they stand and they say, Our Lord is the one who created the heavens and the earth. We don't accept anything other than this. In verse 16, Allah Azza says that they entered the cave. As Allah mentioned at the beginning, that they flee from their people. And they go to the cave not with the purpose of staying there for a very long period of time, but simply to wait there until 
if the situation calms down and people stop looking for them and then they would migrate and go to another land to worship Allah. Just as the Prophet ﷺ would have to migrate from Mecca to Medina. These people had to hide in a cave as well. Allah Azza wa as we mentioned in verse number 10, they make a dua, Oh Allah grant us mercy and give us guidance. And in verse 16 Allah says, We gave them mercy and we made their affair gentle. Mirfaqafum nifq made their affair easy and gentle for them. Meaning, and that is the benefit of guidance, that Allah guides you to the path that is easy for you, that is straight for you, that is upright for you. So Allah says here that He accepted their dua. Allah goes into great detail concerning how they stepped and how Allah preserved them in their sleep. And that is the principle that we mentioned, that Allah doesn't mention details that are unimportant. But when something is important, Allah goes into great detail. Sleep isn't something that you would consider to be important usually. That you would go into detail of the manner of how someone sleeps, their position, how they roll in their bed and so on. But Allah goes through that detail because it is part of the miracle that Allah gave to them. And that miracle is not only that they would sleep for 300 odd years, but that Allah would preserve them in their sleep in such a way that when they wake up, they feel that they've only slept for a short period of time, a day, half a day, part of a day. And that is from Allah's miracle upon them. So Allah Azza wa is telling us how they slept and how Allah preserved them. The sun touches their body, their eyes open and close, they turn from right to left. And now we know from modern science and modern medicine, the role of those are needed in order to keep the body functioning and keep it healthy and keep it revitalized. So that when a person, for example, if they're in a coma, comes out of that coma, they're able to regain the function of their body. And that is from the signs that Allah gave to them. So when Allah considers something to be important and it is part of the principle, Allah will go into detail. 
messenger and the principle here is that the one who turns to Allah, trusts in Allah, believes in Allah, Allah Azza wa Jalla places the universe by his command at their disposal. And Allah protects them with his divine care and protection. And Allah Azza wa Jalla makes things easy for them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showers them with his mercy. In verse 19, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and then they woke up. So they slept for an extremely long period of time. Allah will tell us later on in the verse that they slept for 300 odd years. Then they woke up. And Allah preserved their bodies in such a way that when they wake up, they wake up and they look to each other as if they only slept for a short period of time, meaning that they haven't aged 300 years, but they look exactly the same. They get into the cave, it's morning. By the time they wake up, it's evening. How long have we slept? Either 24 hours, meaning over a day, or we've slept for part of the day and it's the evening of the same day. They say it doesn't matter. What is more important is how we're going to eat because they're extremely hungry. So one of you take this wealth, this money that we have, and wariq is one of the classical words for silver in the sharia. Wariq. Take it and go to the city. And the author Ta'ala says it is Tarsus. If you go to Amman today in Jordan, the capital, they will claim that the cave is there. And you can go and see that cave that they claim is there. And Allah Azza wa knows best. But anyway, they ask for someone to go and get food. And Allah Azza wa shows the preservation of their bodies and the miracle upon them that when they wake, they wake with the same type of fear with which they slept. They slept in the cave in a state of terror and fear that they're being persecuted. And when they awake, they awake with that same state of fear. So Allah not only preserves their bodies, but He preserves their emotions and feelings as well. But then Allah shows us their level of ihsan and excellence. That when they say, let us go and find some food, they don't say just grab anything. The first thing you see, take it and come back. They say, go and bring azka ta'am, the best, the purest, meaning the most halal of food. Because their people are polytheists, they sacrifice to other than Allah. Don't just bring any food, bring us the best of food. Even though it is halal, as we know in times of necessity, for a person to eat whatever they find. Because they're in a state of fear, they're about to die, it is extreme circumstances. But these people, their faith in Allah Azza wa and their Iman doesn't allow them to do that even in those times. And so they say to him, don't just bring us anything, look for something that is halal and pure. We don't want to consume something that is haram. <laughs> For if they find out about you, they will stone you, meaning kill you with stone, will make you revert to their religion, and then you will never have success if you do that. 
وكذلك أعثرنا عليهم ليعلموا أن وعد الله حق وأن الساعة لا ريب فيها Accordingly, having made the wake up in this way, he made them, meaning their people and the unbelievers, chance upon them unexpectedly. So they, meaning their people, might know that Allah's promise of the resurrection is true. Since the one who has the power to make the young men die for such a long period and maintain them as they were without food, must also be able to bring the dead to life. And that there is no doubt about the hour. When they, meaning the believers and unbelievers, were arguing among themselves about the matter, about what to build around the young men, they, meaning the unbelievers, said, What if they came around them to conceal them? Their Lord knows best about them. But those who got the better of the argument concerning them, that is the believers, said, We will build a place of worship over them. That was at the mouth of the cave. In verse number 21, Allah says that they were discovered. In the books of Tafsir, they will say that the man who was told to go and buy the food was discovered because the currency that he had was no longer relevant and the city had changed and the people had changed and many things changed in the period of three centuries. So they were discovered. And when they were discovered and their story was told, the people of that time it is said that they had believed in Allah or that they believed in Allah but some from amongst them denied resurrection and that is why Allah brought them to life these young men to show those people a sign of Allah's power in terms of resurrection and the scholars of Tafsir say that on the day that they were discovered the young men died so they didn't live for very long after they had fulfilled their purpose and their miracle and on the same day they died and then the people differed now what do we do with them what do we do with their bodies one position amongst the scholars of Tafsir is as Suyuti says and the other one is that they took their graves as a place of worship. And that's the meaning of We will build a place of worship over them. Meaning that we will worship them. Or we will use them as a means of coming back, to coming closer to Allah Azza wa Jal. And Allah knows best. They here referring to those who disputed about the number of the young men in the time of the Prophet will say, There were three of them, they had not been the fourth. They will say, There were five of them, they had not been the sixth, guessing at the unseen, conjecturing about something they had no real knowledge of, referring to both the preceding statements which were made by the Christians of Nazarim. And they, the believers, will say, There were seven of them, they had not been the eighth. The first two views are described as being guesswork, whereas the third is not, which indicates that it is pleasing and sound. قُلْ رَبِّي أَعْلَمُ Say, my Lord knows best their numbers. Those who know about them are very few. Ibn Abbas said, I am one of the few, and he mentioned that there were seven. Do not enter into any argument concerning them, except in relation to what is clearly known meaning what has been revealed to you. وَلَا And do not seek the opinion, meaning verdict, of any of them, meaning Christians and Jews, regarding them. In verse 22, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions the differing that they had concerning their number, meaning that the Jews and the Christians differ over how many there were. Three of them, their fourth being the dog, five of them, their sixth being the dog. And one of the points of benefit from this verse is that Allah mentions the dog as being from them. 
the sixth of them being the dog. They don't say five, and then there was a dog. Allah mentions the dog as part of them, even though the dog, as we know from an Islamic point of view, is not a, an animal that we consider to be ritually pure, that we consider to be a blessed animal. The angels don't enter into a house in which there is a dog unless there is a valid excuse for having that dog there. And so therefore, it is not an animal that we generally consider to be a praiseworthy animal in our religion. However, in this context, Allah praises it. Because it is in the company of the righteous, showing the benefits of having good and righteous company. That Allah even places and honors the dog because of the company that it keeps of righteousness. The... Scholar Al-Mahalli rahimahullah ta'ala is saying that Allah dismisses the first two opinions as guesswork of the unseen. But on the third opinion that there were seven and the eighth was the dog, Allah remains silent. And Allah doesn't say anything, showing that it is the correct opinion concerning their number. As Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah said, no one knows their number, your Lord says, except for a few meaning that it is the knowledge that Allah gave to the Muslim ummah. They are the few in that regard. And then at the end of the commentary of this verse in 22, the people of Mecca asked the Prophet ﷺ and he said, I will tell them tomorrow. That is part of the commentary of the next verse, verse number This calculation in verse 25, Allah Azza wa says, 300 years was dadu tis'a, with an addition of 9. And that's because of the way that the verse is, is worded, with the addition of 9, and Allah doesn't say 309 years, but rather 300, and the addition of 9, you have a difference of opinion. The position, as Al-Mahalli mentions, and Ibn Kathir mentions something similar, is that the 300 are soul years, the 309 are lunar years. And other scholars dismiss this and say, no, it's 309 years. It's just 309 normal years, meaning lunar years, and it's not something which the Arabs were familiar with of doing this solar lunar business of, you know, there's one calculation here, one calculation there. And this is the opinion that was chosen by Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala. He said that it means 309, and there is no solar or lunar within this number. Nor does the Sheikh rule with anyone. 
يا المولد أن قرنه واتلو ما أوحي إليك من كتاب ربك Recite what has been revealed to you of your Lord's book. لا مبدل لكلماتك No one can change his words ولا ينتبه من دونه ملتحدا You will never find any safe haven apart from him. واصبر نفسك مع الذين يدعون ربهم بالغداة والعشي يريدون وجهه Restrain yourself patiently with those who call on their Lord in worship in the morning and evening, desiring for space, without any ulterior motive, in the form of desire for things of this world. This refers to the poor. Do not turn your eyes from them. This being addressed to the person looking, desiring the attractions of this world. And do not obey someone whose heart we have made neglectful of our remembrance, meaning the Quran. The persons referred to are Uyayna ibn Husn and his fellows, and who follows his own whims and desires by worshipping idols, and whose life has transgressed all bounds. In the commentary of verse 28, uh, the author of Ta'ala refers to Uyayna ibn Husn, and this is similar to the verse that we covered already in Surah Al-An'am, in which Allah Azza says, وَلَا تَتْغُضِ الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ رَبَّهُمْ بِالْغَدَاتِ وَالْعَشِيِّ يُرِيدُونَ وَجْهَ Do not expel those who seek the face of their Lord. They call upon Him in the morning and in the evening. And the cause of revelation that we mentioned there is Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud and Bilal and Suhaib and some of the weaker companions were with the Prophet and the Quraysh came and said, Oh, Prophet, if oh, they addressing the Prophet ﷺ, that if you gave us a time in which these people would not be present, give us a time for us alone and tell them to go away. And when we're done, you can call them back. And the Prophet ﷺ was willing to accept because he wanted to give them the message of Islam and, and, and hope for guidance for them. And Allah corrected him and said, rather you should be patient with those who call upon their Lord. These people are only using it as another way and as another means of showing they are better than others around them. This verse is similar to that. Allah and some of the scholars said, therefore, that it has a similar cause of revelation. Be patient with those who call upon their Lord in morning and in evening. And don't distract yourself and look beyond them towards what those other people have from the dunya, meaning your strength and power and victory and help and aid will come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. You don't need what they have. وَقُلِ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنُ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرُ Say to him and his companions, it, in the Qur'an, is a truth from your Lord. So let whoever wishes believe and whoever wishes disbelieve. This is a threat to them. إِنَّا أَعْتَدْنَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ نَارًا أَحَاقَ بِهِمْ سُرَادِقُهَا We have prepared for the wrongdoers, meaning the unbelievers, a fire with billowing walls of smoke will hem them in. وَإِنْ يَسْتَغِيثُوا يُغَاثُوا بِمَاءٍ كَالْمُهْلِ يَشْوِي الْمُجُوبِ If they call for help, they will be helped with water like seething molten brass, like boiling oil, frying their faces with its heat when it is cold to them. بِئْسَ الشَّرَابُ وَسَاءَتْ مُهْتَفَقَاءُ What a noxious drink, what an evil repose. This is in contrast with the image of the people in the garden. What a wonderful repose. There is no repose in the fire. In Western Quran, Allah Azza wa Jal, says that people have two choices. They can believe in Allah or they can disbelieve in Him. And then Allah Azzawajal will mention first the punishment of those who disbelieve and then the reward of those who believe. Allah Azzawajal in this, 
in this part of the Quran, in this verse about the punishment of the fire and one of the um, beneficial things of doing when you're going through the Quran is to gather all of the verses that speak about Jannah and its blessings and rewards and gather the verses of the fire and its punishment and its horrors and terrors and bring them together so that you can see the different ways in which the Quran complements one another in terms of those two aspects. Allah says, We have prepared for them a fire that will hem them and reward them in, meaning that they will be surrounded by it completely. And that is from the punishment of the fire, that there will be no air, there will be no exposure, there will be no place where a person will get any type of relief but rather above and, and below and all around them, they will be surrounded by the fire. And then when they experience extreme thirst, they will be given water. Like Al-Muhl. And the author, or the translator rather, says that it is like seething molten brass. But Al-Muhl is considered to be the scum that is taken from the boiling froth of water. So when you have, for example, boiling lava or, or uh, water that is used in, in, in ironmongery and others, this, the froth, the very dirty part of the water, of the boiling water, that is what will be taken from them. Because water in itself, if it is boiled, doesn't necessarily mean something evil. It is the froth and the impurity that it leaves behind, that is what will be given to them. The, of the murky oil, the froth that is left on top of the boiling oil, that is the water meaning the drink that they will be given to, to drink. Yeshwil wuju. It causes the face, the skin of the face to melt. Even before they consume it, just by coming close to it, the heat of the water will make their skin melt of their face. And that is before they consume it and drink it. As for those who believe in the right actions, we will not let the waste of good deeds go to waste. <laughs> They will have gardens of Eden with rivers flowing under them. They will be adorned in them with bracelets made of gold and with green garments made of the finest silk. The word used here for silk, sundus, is a kind of fine brocade. And rich brocade, the word for brocade, istabwaq, is a coarse variety of brocade. And it's also mentioned in Surah Al-Rahman and on couches lined with rich brocade. Reclining there on couches. The word arari is plural of arika which means a couch in an alcove, which is a room adorned with canopies and curtains ready for a bride, under canopies. What's an, what's an excellent reward, meaning guarded. What's a wonderful repose. In verse 31, Allah mentions the reward of the believers that they will be given from the gold and from the silk of Jannah. And that is because, as the Prophet said, that gold and silk has been made haram upon the males of this ummah. For men who are not allowed to consume or wear, because it will be something that Allah will adorn them with on Yawmul Qiyamah. And the verse that he's referring to in Surah Al-Rahman is the verse which Allah says, Ala furushim bata'inuha min istabraq, wajanal jannatini dan.
واضرب لهم مثل الرجلين جعلنا لاحدهما جنتين من اعناب وحففناهما بنخل وجعلنا بينهما زرعا. Make an example for them of the unbelievers and believers of two men. To one of them, being the unbeliever, he gave two gardens of grapevines and surrounded them with date palms, putting between them some cultivated land from which he harvested crops. From verse 32 onwards, Allah goes into the second story that is unique to this surah, and that is the story of the man with the two gardens. And amongst the scholars of tafsir, there is a difference of opinion as to whether this is a parable, meaning that it's not a real life story, not something that took place. It is a parable, an example that Allah is setting forth, or whether it is actually something that happened, which is the position of a number of the scholars of tafsir. And then amongst them, they differ as to who those two men were, were they from just before the Prophet ﷺ came, or were they from the time of Isa ﷺ, or before or after, because we have no authentic narration in that regard. And Allah knows best. But it is a story in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He gave to one of these two men two gardens that will have all of the wealth that you could possibly want and need. In His context, the gardens and the farms, and gardens here means farms, not gardens like we have at the back of our homes when we think that small little piece of land that's not very good for much. That's a different garden that we've become used to in Arabic, the word garden, and it's also used in the context of a hadith, when the Prophet says that one of the companions gave his garden away in charity, in the hadith. Does it mean his garden at the back of his home? It means a farm that has date palms and grapes and other wheat and barley. It's something where they grow. It's more akin to a plot of land, a farm that is used for cultivation. That is the meaning of gardens. Allah Azza wa gave him two gardens, two pots of land that gave forth all of the best of the fruit. And Allah Azza wa mentions from those fruits grapes. Because as we mentioned, grapes in the context is from the best of fruit that a person could have. It's extremely valuable and precious, and only the rich of society would buy it. Meaning, therefore, that not only is he enjoying these blessings, but when he comes to sell them, he's making a good profit on them because of the people that become his customers. <laughs> In verse 33, that Allah Azzawajal from the blessings He gave him is the gardens give forth all of their vegetation. They never have a bad year, a bad harvest, a bad crop. And Allah gave him a river. So he doesn't have to spend money on irrigation, doesn't have to start building tunnels and canals and put in pipes or anything else. Allah gave him a river. So his water is free and his gardens are full in terms of the harvest that they produce. And that is from the blessings that Allah gave to him. وَكَانَ لَهُ ثَمَرٌ فَقَالَ لِصَاحِبِهِ وَهُوَ يُحَاوِرُهُ أَنَا أَكْثَرُ مِنْكَ مَالًا وَأَعَزُّ نَثَرًا He, the man of the two gardens, was a man of wealth and property, but as Thamar, Thumar, and Thum, all of which are plural of Thamar. And he said to his companion, meaning the believer, debating with him, I have more wealth than you, and more people of my clan under me. He entered his garden with his companions and walked around in it and showed him his fruits. Allah did not say both gardens, but means by garden here the whole expanse of land. It is also said that it is sufficient to mention one, and wronged himself with unbelief by saying, I do not think that this will ever end. This man, his wealth that Allah gives him, rather than making him humble 
and making him someone who uses that wealth in a manner that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what happens to him is often what happens to people who are given that amount of wealth, that it creates within them arrogance and pride and haughtiness, and they look down upon others and belittle them. So this man is saying to his friend that doesn't have what Allah gave to him, that isn't as blessed as him in terms of worldly affairs, he says to him that I am better than you, not only in terms of wealth, but my people and supporters are better, meaning my children, my servants, my workers, my employees, all of us, we are greater than you in wealth and we are greater than you in number. And it leads him to even more arrogance, as Allah then mentions in verse 35, he enters into his garden and he says that I don't think that this will ever be destroyed. And then in 36, Allah will say it will take him to disbelief because he says that I don't even think that there will be an aqiyama. And if there is, then surely Allah would give me even more. Again, on that false logic that we mentioned before, that if Allah gives me blessings of the dunya here, He must love me. So surely then in the next life, Allah will give me even better because of that love that He has for me. His companion with whom he was debating said to him, Do you then disbelieve in him who created you from dust, because Adam was created from dust, then from a drop of sperm, and then formed you balanced as a man? But he is Allah, my Lord. And this is his companion replying to him saying, and Allah is praising this friend despite his poverty, despite the less people that he has to depend upon and help him. Allah praises him because he is a believer. And he's saying to his friend, how can you disbelieve from the one that created you and gave you everything that you have that you possess? Why, when you enter your garden and admired it, did you not say, It is as Allah wills, there is no strength but in Allah. In a hadith, we find if someone is good in the form of family or wealth, we should say about that, It is as Allah wills, there is no strength but in Allah, and then you will not find anything disliked in it. And this narration that is mentioned in verse 39 is collected by Tabarani, but it is a weak narration. And we have other narrations in which the Prophet ﷺ told us that when we see something that impresses us, or something that amazes us, or something that we are pleased with, we should ask Allah to bless it. And from them is the hadith in Al-Bukhari of Sahal ibn Hunayf radiallahu anhu, concerning the evil eye. When the Prophet ﷺ said to the companion who inflicted the evil eye inadvertently, what you should have done when you saw something that amazed you is ask for Allah's blessing. And from the way that Allah's blessing comes is by saying what Allah mentions, Allah, to say Allah. And this is the second etiquette that we have in this surah. The first one was to say Allah when wanting to do something in the future. That is from the etiquettes of the Muslim. And the second is when you see something that impresses you either in yourself or from someone else, you say Allah. And the understanding that some people have that you can't say MashaAllah, but rather the meaning of that you ask for barakah is you have to say Allahumma barik. That's not a correct understanding. 
Because Allah Azza wa Jal, by evidence of this verse says, you can say MashaAllah. So as long as you make dua for barakah, that is the point. And to say that it's only restricted to one statement where you only say Allahumma barik or whatever else, that is not the correct understanding of the hadith nor of this verse. Verse 42, Allah Azza wa mentions that the destruction of his garden comes from above and beneath. Above the rain stops and beneath the river and the water that was used to irrigate his garden dried up. So he is in total destruction in terms of the wealth that Allah Azza wa had given to him. And Allah Azza wa in verse number 42 says, وَهِيَ And from the beautiful descriptions that some of the scholars of Tafsir gave of this is that all he was left with was the twigs of his grapes. Because the grapes were the best, the wealth that Allah had provided him with, his most precious property that had brought him the most profit. But once he doesn't have anything left, he's left only with the branches and the twigs of that bunch of grapes. And that is how complete the destruction was. The only protection is with Allah. And Al-Mahalli rahimahullah says on the day of rising. And that's one meaning. But also in the current situation, meaning on the day that he had destruction, there was no one to offer him protection on the day that the punishment of Allah descended upon him. So Yawm Al-Qiyamah is later on. For even in this world, he had no protector for him except for Allah. Make an for them, meaning mankind, 
of the life of this world. It is like water which we send down from the sky, and the plants of the earth combine with it, and fill out because of the water being sent down. For the water mixes with the plants, and so they are fresh and beautiful. But then they, meaning the plants, become dry and shallow, scattered by the wind, and so they disappear completely. Thus, this world is like beautiful plants which then become dry and broken and are then dissipated by the wind. Allah has absolute power over everything. And sons are the embellishment of the life of this world. That in your Lord's sight, wise actions which are lasting, such be the statements, glory be to Allah, praise be to Allah, there is no God but Allah, and Allah is greater. And some add, there is no power nor strength except by Allah, bring a better reward and are a better basis for hope, for what people desire from Allah Almighty. The author Rahimullah Ta'ala mentions in the statement of Allah Azza the everlasting good deeds and the scholars differ over what is being referred to or what is being meant by them from those positions and one of the most common ones is the one that Al-Mahalli Rahimahullah mentions and that is that it refers to the adhkar Subhanallah, Alhamdulillah, Allahu Akbar La ilaha illallah, la hawla wa la quwata illa billah and the narration in that regard came from Uthman radiallahu anhu when he was asked concerning that that is the tafsir that he gave as what it refers to and others from amongst them said that the baqiyat al-salihat, the everlasting good deeds, refers to the salah, the prayer. And others from amongst them said it refers to good character. And others said it refers to good speech, al-kalam al-tayyib. And others from amongst them, the position that was chosen by al-Tabari and Ibn Kathir and al-Shaqiti, alayhim rahmatullah, and the one that combines between them all, is that it refers to all good deeds that are done with sincerity that the person will find their benefit on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. They are lasting in that sense, that they will come and the person will see their reward on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that is bringing all of the different tafasir of the Salaf and amalgamating them into one. On the day we make the mountains move, read as Nusayyuhul as here, and also as Nusayyuhul when the meaning becomes on the day the mountains move, meaning that they are removed from the face of the earth and become dust. And you see the earth laid bare with nothing on it, mountains or anything else. And we gather them together, believers and unbelievers, not leaving out a single one of them. In verse 47, the Qira'ah is Nusayyirul Jibal and Tusayyirul. With the Fathah and the Ya, Tusayyirul Jibal and Nusayyirul Jibal. They will be paraded before your Lord in ranks, each nation in a row, and this will be said to them, You have come to us just as we prayed to you at first, naked, barefoot, and uncircumcised. It will be said to those who denied the resurrection, Yes, indeed, even though we claim that we would not fix a time with you for the resurrection. The book, a generic term referring to the books recording the actions of every human being, those of believers being placed in their right hands, and those of unbelievers in their left hands, will be set in place. And you will see the evildoers, meaning unbelievers, fearful of what is in it. And 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or rather al-Muhalli rahimahullah concerning the part of the verse Kana min al-jinn Iblis was one of the jinn he mentions the position that the jinn were a type of angel and that is a weak position and that's why Suyuti rahimahullah in all of the stories so far of Adam and Iblis hasn't mentioned that position but he mentions the other one that they are two distinct species and that the jinn are made from fire and they were never from the angels and they're not part of the angels and they're not from the company of the angels in that sense either except for Iblis who was with them for a short period of time. And that's the second position that Al-Mahalli mentions, and that is the correct one. As for the first one, it is weak, and from its most weakened parts, which is why As-Suyuti doesn't mention, as well as the addition of the hadith that we mentioned about the creation of humans and jinn and mankind, is this verse itself that Allah very clearly says he was from the jinn. I did not make them, meaning Iblis and his offspring, witnesses of the creation of the heavens and the earth, or of their own creation. I will not take as assistance those whom the Shayateen led astray. So how can you obey them? On the day he says, Radaz Yahulu and Nahulu, meaning we say, Call my partner gods, meaning idols, those for whom you made such claims, that they will intercede for you. They will call on them, but they will not respond to them. We will place between them, meaning between the idols and those who worship them, an unbridgeable gulf. This refers to a particular chasm, one of the valleys of the Hannah, in which they will be they will all be destroyed. The evil doers will see the fire and realize with certainty they are going to fall into it and find a way of escaping from it. We have variegated and made clear throughout this Quran all kinds of examples for people, so that we may be admonished. But more than anything else, 
unbelieving man is argumentative inwardly. The argumentativeness of man is the thing which is the most dominant in him. In verse 53, Allah Azza wa Jalla says, "Wara al-mujrimun al-nar." The avid evil doers will see the fire. فَظَنُّوا أَنَّهُمْ مُوَاقِعُهَا And then they won't certainly know that they are going to fall therein. And the word ظن in the Arabic language literally means to think. But the meaning here is to be certain. And often in the Quran, the word to think is used for certainty. And that is because of some of the scholars of Tafsir mentioned that when Allah speaks about the disbelievers and the people of the fire, Allah doesn't even affirm to them a word of positivity. Because to be certain indicates positivity. A person who is certain means that they have sure knowledge and they are people who are confident. And it gives a, the implication of having a positive sense of the word. Allah doesn't even use that word. Even though the meaning is that they will certainly be from the people of the fire, Allah says they think. Because the word think shows weakness. And it shows a lack of certainty. And it shows that a person is unsure of themselves. And that is why Allah uses that. And in verse 54 Allah says, وَكَانُ إِنْسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا Man is argumentative. And in the hadith of Bukhari and Muslim of Ali radiallahu anhu, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam once visited him in his house along with his wife Fatima radiallahu anha. And the Prophet sallallahu said to them both, if only the two of you would wake up at night and pray Qiyamun Layl. Ali radiallahu anhu said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, we go to sleep and our affairs in the hand of Allah. If we, he decrees we wake up, we wake up. And if he doesn't, we don't. So the Prophet got up and left. And as he was leaving, he said, وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا Man is increasingly argumentative. Meaning that he was giving them an advice and something which was benefiting for them. And in return, people make excuses. And that is the nature of humans. And guidance in the Quran gives the people who lead over into the Mecca nothing to prevent them from believing and asking for forgiveness from their Lord for the fact that the pattern of previous peoples did not happen to them. A reference to Allah's custom with unbelieving nations, which was destruction decreed for them. Or that the punishment did not appear physically before their eyes. That changed at the Battle of, at the battle of Badr when punishment took the form of killing and they saw it directly. We only send the messengers to bring good news to the believers and to give warning to the unbelievers. Those who disbelieve use fallacious arguments to deny the truth, meaning the Quran, by saying, with Allah is immortal as a messenger and other such things. They make a mockery of my signs, meaning the Quran and also of the warning of the fire they were given. وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ ذُكِّرَ بِآيَاتِ رَبِّهِ فَأَعْرَضَ عَنْهَا وَنَسِيَ مَا قَدَّمَتْ يَدَاهِ Who could do great wrong if someone is reminded of the signs of his Lord and then turns away from them, forgetting all the acts of unbelief and disobedience that he has done before? إِنَّا جَعَلْنَا عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ أَكِنَّةً أَنْ يَفْقَهُمْ وَبِي آذَانِهِمْ وَقَرَاهِ We have placed cover, covers on their hearts, preventing them from understanding it, meaning the Quran, and heaviness in their ears. So that we cannot hear it. Don't call them to guidance, it will still never be 
he had taken them to task in this world for what they have earned, he would have tasted their punishment in it. Instead, they have a promised appointment on the day of rising, and they will not find any refuge from it. Those cities, referring to the inhabitants, such as Ad, Thamud, and others, who destroyed them when they did wrong and disbelieved. And fixed a promised time for the destruction. Red as Mahlatihim and Mukhlatihim. And with that, inshallah ta'ala, we will stop at the end of verse number 59 for today. This recording was produced by Green Lane Masjid. For more information on the activities and services the mosque provides, please visit www.greenlanemasjid.org.